Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty, a special episode this week with Congressman Thomas Massey. Only Congress has the right to declare war. Check it out. Congressman Massey, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Friend of the show. I see you're blessing us. Uh, you're wearing your uh, this a, is official precious button today. I'm wearing precious. It's all for you, though, Matt. Now, if you take that off, will you disappear? No, it's the opposite. It's the like, opposite, It's yeah. the opposite. The cops can't see me when I wear it. Yeah. It doesn't really affect you. But you're, uh, you know, potentially you'll you'll become more and more corrupt as this show goes on if you keep it on for too yes, long. Yes, <laughs> yes, this will happen. I'll go to detox after the show. Well, this is either a really good time or a really bad time to do this show because you just came from the House floor. Nancy Pelosi had, had late votes and we're in the midst of debating Iran and the use of force and and uh, there was a vote tonight. Tell me, Tell me what happened and how you voted. So the resolution we voted on tonight, and I did just come from the floor, uh, was a resolution ostensibly to invoke the War Powers uh, Act of 1973 that says, uh, you know, that the president can only do so much and he can't go to war without an act of Congress. And this was basically a restatement of that. It was somewhat redundant. Uh, but I think it was important to have the vote. Now, in order for the vote to carry weight, it would also have to pass the Senate. The House bill tonight was a concurrent resolution. The one they're working on in the Senate is called a joint resolution. And that's, don't get excited, it's not about marijuana. It's <laughs> Senate joint resolution. So the difference between a concurrent resolution, which is the House bill, and the joint resolution, which is the Senate bill, that Kane is has written and Mike Lee and Rand Paul support, is that a joint resolution has to pass both chambers and then it's signed by the president and has the force of law. The House version was a concurrent resolution. So there's some debate over whether it really means anything because it also has to pass the Senate, but it doesn't even go to the president's desk. He can't even veto it. But it's what the War Powers... Act of 1973 calls for its concurrent resolution, but there's been a Supreme Court case, 1983, Chada, INS versus Chada, it says you can't veto, you can't give powers to the president and then veto them without presenting them to the president for chance to veto. So boiling all of this down, it was mostly a symbolic vote over whether the president can go to war in Iran without Congress. So, uh, a a clear statement from the House, but not with really with the teeth right. that, that the Senate is trying to do. Right. The Senate version, if it comes to the House and we vote for that, has real teeth. It's not debatable in the Supreme Court or in any court. And then it would go to the president. But the problem with that one is he's going to veto it. And there aren't enough votes in the House, probably not in the Senate either, to sustain a veto. So... Uh, this isn't going to prevail. Sure. But there was a lot of debate today on this bill. Yeah. Uh, one of the important aspects uh, of the bill that changed just today, it changed because of my colleague, Matt Gates, who was one of three Republicans, along with me and Rooney, uh, who voted for this mostly, you know, Democrat resolution, Matt Gates insisted that they take out any criticism of the president, the current president, and his actions toward Soleimani. Uh, and he actually, it was a smart thing to do. A lot of Republicans rightfully said in the debate today that the Democrats are only doing this to score political points. And it's true. It is true. They said the timing of it is proof and that is true, too. But to them, I would say, I've been with you guys in the majority for six years, and you never brought this stuff up. 
Like, if you're complaining about the timing now of debating war powers of Congress versus the president, that's I'm not going to be sympathetic to that. And also, if the Democrats instantly found their anti-war religion again, I don't care how they got to the foot of the cross. If it took an orange man to lead them there, they're <laughs> back at the foot of the anti-war you know, cross. And so let's pray with them and let's stop the next war. Well, you know, it is um, that the, you're, you're describing this this somewhat toothless expression of of the House wanting to reacquire their their authority to declare war. And it reminds me and this may be a bad comparison, but it reminds me a little bit of impeachment because because it was so urgent and it was a constitutional crisis and the House had to act. But they're still sitting on that they haven't they haven't sent it over to the senator whatever it is they're supposed to do it's a perfect analogy pelosi designed impeachment so that it could have no resolution it could come to no finish yeah and though by doing a concurrent resolution instead of a joint resolution with this war powers act thing she's done the same thing if the senate were to pass it where does it go next it goes to the courthouse like now we're going to litigate whether Chada applies to the War Powers Act and you can exercise congressional veto over war powers, blah, blah, blah. And so she would throw it into limbo just like she did with the impeachment. Yeah, yeah. But Everything is politics. It is politics, except for, for me on this bill. Uh, you know, I kind of blurred my eyes and said, well, it's not, it's not perfect, but it is. It's one of the only, one of the very few statements of whether Congress has the authority to go to war or whether the president does that I have had an opportunity to vote on since I've been in Congress. So I'm going to vote for this. Yeah. And so I did. And, um, you know, in, invoking the, the good, great memory of my late friend Walter B. Jones from Jr. from Florida, uh, or Florida, sorry, from North Carolina. Uh, you know, we buried him just last year. Uh, you know, thinking about Walter Jones, he helped me to understand there's going to be two times that you're going to be called to account for your activity in Congress. The first time will be your next reelection, and um, the last time is going to be when you draw your last breath of air. Yeah. And so it was thinking about Walter Jones and his conviction to stopping the next war that inspired me to uh, vote for this in, in large part. Well, remind everybody what, what Walter did, because um, the point that I want to get back yeah. to is that, you know, the, the partisan nature of any debate about war, it seems like everybody rediscovers the Constitution when the other party's guy is in the White House. And, and Republicans were pretty good about complaining about Barack Obama's unconstitutional wars uh, in Iraq, and we, we'll, we'll probably get into all that, but Walter Jones was, was the guy that was willing to step up and say, you know what, I made a mistake, Republicans made a mistake um, by voting to, to go into Iraq. Yeah, that was a big step for Walter, and it's virtually unprecedented in politics. Yeah. For somebody on a significant vote, like voting on whether to go to war in Iraq, to come out later and say, you know what, I made a big mistake. And Walter didn't just vote for it. He coined this term freedom fries yeah. and got some notoriety for it. And then... Yeah, uh, he was all in. Yeah, he was all in. And it, it wasn't like, you know, on the edge sort of vote. And um, within a few years, and the bodies started coming back, and he represented a... Uh, Marine base in his district, and he, you know, going and talking to families, he realized he had made a tragic mistake, and that his soul was, you know, in the balance, and he wrote thousands of letters to all of the families who lost a soldier, in atonement for that vote, and I had dinner with him almost every week. By the way, neither of us were in the Freedom Caucus, were or are in the Freedom Caucus. And so we kind of had the Walter Jones Thomas Massey Caucus because there was nobody else to go to eat with yeah. on, on fly-in day. It was like, we're all the conservatives. Well, we're the only two, Walter. Well, let's go over to the Capitol Hill Club. And so uh, I, 
I know for a fact that every before every meal he prayed about soldiers, and uh, he that's he told me, look, I'm not going to be here much longer. I don't know how he knew he was going to pass away, of a rare disease, but yeah. he I, and I never took him seriously when he said that. But then he would also talk about his mistake in voting for the Iraq War, and uh, so yeah, he was uh, he inspired me. He taught me a lot, and he was a a true Southern gentleman. And I was the one who delivered his eulogy on the floor of the house. And I asked people, you know, Walter's one wish was that he could have finished his last term and he, because he would have served for as long as his dad did. And uh, he didn't get to finish that term. And I, I said, so when you vote, let's help Walter finish his term by thinking to yourself, what would Walter do? Yeah. And that's what I was thinking tonight when I voted Again, it's a resolution that's probably not going to be binding, but it is a vote not to have a war in Iran, and I took the vote not to have a war in Iran. And it is, I mean, it's got to be a step uh, to getting some people at least to understand that there was a time. We'll have to probably go all the way back to Alexander Hamilton and (laughs) James Madison. There was a time when the United States... um, that the, the law of the land, the Constitution said that it is Congress that declares war. And I, w- I want to walk through all that, but but I, let me just give a shout out to, to you and Walter, uh, other members of Congress. I, I, think, I think the measure sometimes of doing the right thing is your willingness to actually vote against your own party and your own president when, when the Constitution is at stake. And I think yeah. that's where we're at. Yeah, and, and it, it's got to be a little when uncomfortable. It your, when it is your president in the White House, it's it's difficult. The Republicans wouldn't let me speak on the floor uh, today. Yeah. So I negotiated with the Democrats to get one minute. I said, "Look, this is this is a tough vote. I'm going to have to it's I'm going to have to explain it." Yeah. And uh, they were gracious enough to give me a minute, and and that's when I explained this is this is not the president. I reminded them, the Democrats in my speech, I voted for Trump and I plan to vote for him again. So this ain't about him. Uh, this is about reclaiming our constitutional authority, but more importantly, our moral obligation to debate when our soldiers are going to be asked to give up their lives. Yeah. Let's take a step back because I, I want I want people to understand sort of the historical context of, of why it is that, that Congress has the authority to declare war and how they've abdicated that um, for at least my lifetime, and we could probably go back even further. Um, if Let's talk a little bit about Article One, Section 8. Um, it's pretty clear. What does it say? Uh, power has – that Congress has the power to declare war, and uh, it gets ignored. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much that simple. It's been, a, uh, I think, a gradual decline. Uh, the founders knew, especially Madison, that it was important to put it in the legislative branch because, uh, number one, kings became more popular during war. Like when you're defending the homeland or expanding your empire, the, the people like a good war and everything good that comes from it, the, that benefit politically ascribes to the executive. And so they knew, number one, it was bad for that reason to let an executive do it. Also, why would you want just one person to be able to declare a war? And finally, the point that I made in my speech, another point that I made in my speech, which the founders well knew, you do not want to go to war. You don't want to send soldiers there unless the soldiers have the support of the people. And it would be very easy for one executive to do something that might not have the support of the people. But it's a lot harder to go to the people's house and it, who are going to be up for election in, in no more than two years uh, and get the authority to go to war. So they wanted to put it in the hands of the people's house. And so that's another reason why it was wise to do that. And even even Alexander Hamilton, who was by far the guy that advocated a strong and robust presidency, even he acknowledged that a president left unchecked would would always 
choose the option of going to war. But I went back and I found uh, a letter from James Madison, and I want to read it because I I can't explain it as eloquently as he did. Um, But he said, of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every, every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debts and taxes, and armies, debts, and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. In war, too, the discretionary power of the executive is extended. Its influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emoluments is multiplied, and all the means of seducing the minds are added to those of subduing the force of the people. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. And he, he, he's pretty much describing where we've been. Um, where we are. Yeah, where we are today. Which so is pretty smart guy. He's, he saw this coming. I mean, he's, he studied history, yeah. right? It wasn't like he could see the future. He was using empirical data. Yeah. Right? That's a fact. And what human nature and, and what power does to people. Power corrupts, and um, that's where we are today. The other thing is um, we're in this perpetual state of war. We've got an AUMF that authorizes us to go into Afghanistan. and So let, let's define these. Cause, so you yeah. have the 73 Act. War Powers Act, yeah. The War Powers Act, and <clears throat> what, what did that do? Well— at the time, Congress thought it gave him more power, and the president vetoed it. And they had to override his veto to pass it. But it's actually pretty lenient compared to what the, a strict reading of the Constitution says. Yeah, so it weakened, in a sense. The... I, th- I think it diluted what was pl- in plain English in the Constitution and what the founders had debated. Yeah. But the executive at the time thought it was, it was giving Congress more power to stop him. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, so there's some debate over whether it was a wise thing. There's some debate over whether it's constitutional. There's the provision in it that's got the congressional veto where you can pass a concurrent resolution and not even send it to the president and basically claw back the president from a a war that he's put his toe into, which is sort of a really hard thing to do politically, even if you can do it. I mean, imagine if today the Soleimani thing, uh, the, the response to that had transpired differently and we were trading missiles with Iran between either Israel or because or, they can't reach our country right now or some base, okay, some military base of importance to us and Iran. Let's say we're trading missiles. You think Congress could go and, and claw back, get us out of that war politically? Hell no. You'd be, they say you don't support the troops. They're dying over there. You got to, you got to support even, there'll be even Democrats saying support this. And by, and by the way, the abdication of, of this clear congressional responsibility is in part driven by political cowardice. They don't want to be accountable for when war goes bad and, and war almost always goes bad. Yeah. And body bags start coming home, and and whatever the original enthusiasm was for the war, um, the American people start saying, wait, why why are we doing this? So, uh, you know, on my Twitter feed tonight, I posted my speech, and I saw one of the common themes, refrains, uh, uh, objections to my statement that if we're going to send our men and women to die, we owe it to them to debate it in Congress and— show they have the support of the people because ultimately we're going to have to fund it too. And the, and the common objection I see to that is, Oh my gosh, you guys are such idiots. If, and you can never decide anything. If we left it up to you, it would take six months to declare a war, you know? Well, maybe in the case where war is ambiguous, the need for war is ambiguous. Maybe it's a good thing that we get into this metastable state and never come out with a resolution to declare war. Now, in the case of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it didn't, it didn't take but, a, you know, 24 hours, you know, 48 hours, whatever it was, to, to declare war. So, number one, their objection 
is is wrong. Like if you look at the last time we actually declared war, right? A real declaration of war. World War Two. World War Two. That came like that, uh, and I think there was only one objection to it, right? Then, the, then if you look at all the wars that we're into, if if we without congressional authorization. You know, they did. There were a couple of them where we've done AUMFs, right? Which is something short of that, which is in itself not a good idea, but at least it's Congress having a say and owning it. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, sort of, sort of owning it, right? Uh, only uh, like for the AUMFs that were passed in two thousand one and two thousand and two, that authorized the war in Afghanistan, war in Iraq, authorization for the of use of military force. force. Yeah, for for those. Um, only about 15% of the people that voted for those are still in Congress or the Senate. And so think about that. So we can't hold them accountable. No, the 85% of them are already retired and drawing a pension, okay? Or lobbyists in D.C. How are you going to hold them accountable? There was no, like, uh, goal in the AUMF that was articulated in the case of the first AUMF that authorized the so-called war on terror, there was no boundary, not just in time, but in, in space. You can go literally anywhere on the globe under the auspice of fighting terror and be covered by the 2001 AUMF. So, uh, and, that, and that was passed right after the attack, the 9-11 attacks. Right, right in, right in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. By the way, to it's either today or yesterday. When you're in Congress, this stuff just sort of melts together until you can leave and go back to your home state and recharge your batteries. But it was either yesterday or today that I re-upped my co-sponsorship of Democrat Barbara Lee's bill to repeal the AUMF in Iraq. Okay. Now, the thing is, you, when we were talking about the executive always tends to war. Mm-hmm. And once you get your toe in a war, it's hard to get out. The other thing is, once you have troops everywhere, now you've created all these targets, and and they all need to be defended. Absolutely need to be defended. But now you've created another opportunity to, to get into a war. Like in Iraq, we've got all of our troops still there, even though Saddam's been gone for a long time. And so when anybody attacks those troops, we've got to attack them back. We absolutely have to protect our troops. But the problem is the troops shouldn't be there. Yeah. The way to stop a a proxy war with Iran in Iraq from morphing and metastasizing into a full-on hot war between two countries or multiple countries is not to be in Iraq. By the way, it's not just the military bases that create this nexus. You realize we built an embassy in, uh, in Iraq. It's the biggest one in the world. It's 104 acres. The original price tag was $750 million. So I'm going to go ahead and say it was a billion. Nothing ever gets done on time or at cost in government. We've got a billion-dollar, 100-acre embassy in Iraq. I call it the world's largest boat anchor. I think... The the don't write me off for calling saying deep state, but the deep state okay knew they could get a, a funding to build an embassy mm-hmm. right. Who's gonna? I mean, it's diplomacy, right? right. We gotta we gotta move from war to diplomacy. So let's build. We need a lot of diplomacy. So let's build one. This three times the size of our embassy in China. Okay, and so. They built this boat anchor, but it, and what it does is you got to protect your embassies, right? You've seen what happens in Benghazi. Yeah. But can you imagine trying what it takes to defend, or, or even what the freaking light bill is on a 104-acre embassy with yeah. thousands of people in it? Okay, so that cemented our political and military involvement in Iraq for many years against the wishes of the American people. And, you know, the irony is, and I think you pointed this out on Twitter, so you have uh, Soleimani, who's clearly a bad guy, um, clearly a murderous monster, 
Um, I'm not sure he won't be replaced by somebody even worse. I assume there's an infinite number of murderous monsters that would be available to the Iranian government to do whatever it is they they want to accomplish. But he's flying in and out of Iraq um, without any problems, and and you wonder what happens uh, after all this this treasure and all of these American lives that we've spent liberating Iraq. Um, from terrorist organizations, uh, they appear to be pretty much controlled or at least in cahoots with Iran. Yeah, well, uh, there's twice as many Shia in Iraq as there are Sunnis. And Iran is a predominantly Shia nation. It's a natural thing for a Shia government dominated government or parliament or whatever to evolve in Iraq. Like, it was sort of an anomaly to have somebody like Saddam, and he was a dictator, but he was a minority, Mm -hmm. and he was keeping that country together. He kept the Shias from dominating the government there. And, uh, I mean, there were far more Christians in Iraq before we went there and tore the whole place apart and deposed and then killed Saddam Hussein. And what we did is we created a vacuum first for ISIS to take over and now for Iran to take over. I mean, that's one of the ways that Soleimani built his political base in Iraq was he was helping to take out ISIS. But ISIS was occupying a vacuum that we created. Yeah. And so I don't I don't know what sort of framework you can set up in Iraq as long as Iran is still a country that Iran won't have influence in now that we've taken them out. So you're Excuse saying that, that nation building in Iraq didn't work? It it didn't work there. I I challenged somebody to show me somewhere it has worked. What an amazing uh, sort of arrogance and, and pretense that and, and neoconservatives, they, 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 they want to go to all these wars. And the, the presumption is, is that we can sort of export American style uh, democracy Jeffersonian, and rule of yeah. law. Um, <laughs> They're going to have these guys in white wigs with powder on. <laughs> what, what are they what are they smoking? Um, I, I don't know where you can get what they're smoking. Yeah. Um, they sell that to the American people, right? I don't think the people who are architecting this themselves believe that. I mean, like Afghanistan, I've talked to the uh, Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, and he's described um, Afghanistan as the as 12th century with rifles, like that sort of thing. Yeah. where they're at right now. and I, But an interesting thing is I, I talked to a constituent of mine yesterday, called in, was talking to one of my staffers. I said, is that a constituent? And he said, yeah. I said, and, and she was talking about war. I'm pretty sure she was a Democrat. I said, let me talk to the constituent. I, I didn't know if it was going to be, I call this roulette, right? Like, you do not know when you pick up the phone and you don't know what the conversation is, what you're going to get. But I had a constituent who wanted to make sure we didn't go to war in Iran. I'm pretty sure she didn't vote for me and never will vote for me, but I was sympathetic to her position. But she had been in the Peace Corps from 1968 to 1971 in Afghanistan. And she said you could go anywhere. They were the kindest people. She was helping give vaccinations not to trigger the vaccination debate here but <clears throat> we, we won't go there okay let's don't do that but uh she was there doing that and with the support of the people we're pissing off enough people just talking about what we're talking about but my point my point is this uh it wasn't a modern country then i don't want you to think like we've we've moved them backward yeah she didn't, you know, she said there was a, a, a lot of infant mortality and, you know, but she said 15, 20, 30 years later, people describe that as the golden age in Afghanistan yeah. where 
people then weren't in fear of their lives or some dictatorship or or some oppressive theocracy. So 18 years in Afghanistan, um, slightly less in Iraq, trillions of dollars. Um, I now forget how many American lives have been lost. And things are worse than they were when we went after terrorism. Is that an overstatement? It's not an overstatement. Um, I think it's accurate. And um, the, the, the worst part of that, even if we don't want to litigate the past and blame, you know, if, you, if we step away from blaming the people that made those mistakes, the question is, what do you do going forward, right? I wasn't in Congress. I'd like to think I wouldn't have voted for them, but I don't know. I wasn't here, yeah. but I'm here now. So what do we do going forward? Well, we owe it to the, to the troops who are still there, still fighting to define a mission that they can accomplish so they can come home. Like, even the people who are uh, excited about the fact that President Trump took out Soleimani are not excited about staying in Iraq or staying in Afghanistan or starting another war in Iran. That's the thing I've come to realize in the last couple of weeks. My first thought when I saw all the celebration over the president's conquest over this uh, bad guy, okay, was that um, my first thought was, oh, my gosh, people like war. But what I realized when I started posting and interacting with people and talking to people is, no, they, they like the fact that the president took out Soleimani, but they want to get us out of Iraq. Like the same people who are happy about that say, yeah, get our troops home. Yeah. So. Well, Iraq, Iraq agrees, agrees with us now. They, they want us <laughs> to leave. So right. the parliament did. And then people say, well, but the Kurds and the Sunnis didn't show up for the vote. Well, you know what? Guess what? If they did, they would have lost anyway. Like it's, it's a Shia majority country. And, they just like America, they even there's a, there's a sentiment even among the people that like America that of of pride, national pride, that they want to be a sovereign country. They don't want to be a puppet. Yeah. And they and they know that when we come in and do things and take over and, and make their government look like a pretend government because now we're running things for a week or two. They know that is not good for the future of the country. And by the way, Americans would never tolerate a scenario like that where a foreign nation was pulling the strings and calling the shots. None of this passes the golden rule, which is, you know, do unto others as you would have them yeah. do unto you. It doesn't, the stuff we get away with on smaller countries, wouldn't even pass muster if you did it to China or Russia, right? Right. Like, it's only because we can dominate those countries that we are able to do these things, and, and it's accepted as, okay, well, we did it. Like, can you imagine if it, if it were Russia or China that we were having sort of escalating these proxy wars with? be a whole different ballgame, which, by the way, gets me to a point I really wanted to make tonight. Uh, we are 10% of the world's population, and we dominate the whole globe. And we do it by having the baddest-ass military in the world with the best technology. We've we still, for a little bit longer, got the best manufacturing like, if you want quality stuff, Made in USA is the best. Um, and, and so our foreign policy is we do what we want because we can. And nobody can challenge that. Long before <laughs> CO2 is an issue on this planet, okay, we're going to have to come up with a new business model for getting along with the other 90% of the world's population. Because they're catching up technologically. If we ever got into a war that involved manufacturing prowess, 
it's it's questionable right now whether we can keep up with some of these other countries. I mean, in World War II, you had Frigidaire making machine guns and General Motors making you know guns and tanks and Ford. We don't really have that kind of base right now, or to the extent we do have it, other countries have more of it themselves now. Uh, so what I'm saying here is that our our business model, so to speak, for getting along with the rest of the world needs to become something other than we got a military that can kick your ass, and so we're going to do what we want. That That model will fly for another 20, maybe 50 years. Yeah. But at some point, the, the billion-plus people that live in China and the billion-plus people that live in India are going to contest the 300 million-plus people that live in the United States on, the, on that sort of issue just by catching up with us technologically and manufacturing-wise. And look, I don't, I, I don't want anybody other than us to have a nuclear weapon, frankly, okay? But eventually— we're going to live in a world where they do. It's, it's going to happen. Uh, and so, number one, we need to start being nice to some of these people. <laughs> <laughs> and number two, we, we need to work on our missile defense system. Yeah. Like instead of going off and going out and, and doing stuff to other countries, I think we need to be back here sharpening the sword that allows us to prevent other countries from doing things to us. One of, one of the reasons we were so, we are so prosperous and we got such a head start on all these other countries is after we kicked their asses and got them off of our island, which was essentially North America at the time, uh, we, they, it was just too much trouble for them to come and mess with us, right? The ocean was such a barrier. We don't, we don't have another place we can go and do that again. And, with travel and hypersonic missiles, that ocean is going to becomes less and less of a barrier and a safety factor. I've always wondered why it is that that Democrats and you know the establishment in the swamp were so opposed to missile defense as as an alternative to to going off to war and, and nation building and all that stuff. But imagine the sort of defense system we could have built with the cost of, of basically buying and rebuilding Afghanistan alone. Forget, forget the embassy in Iraq. Imagine if of the $750 billion we spend on defense every year, we, we took um, two or $300 billion of that instead and said instead of keeping 30,000 people, you know, soldiers in Japan and 25,000 in Korea and then, you know, tens of thousands in the Middle East and this many in Germany. Instead of doing that, we are going to spend it on missile defense. Like, I'm an engineer, okay? I know these are hard problems to solve, but I know they're solvable. And... We could make the fact that Iran could get a nuclear weapon or North Korea could get a nuclear weapon or the fact that China has nuclear weapons or that Russia has nuclear weapons. We could make that a moot point with technology that we could develop in a few short years. And honestly, that's what we should be doing. Now, at the time, I know people opposed it back in the 80s. They made fun of Reagan for Star Wars and blah, blah, blah. Uh, a lot of stuff that was a stretch then is possible now. Uh, and the lot, one of the reasons some people opposed it back then is they said it was actually an escalation, not a de-escalation. They said if you, if you build something that can stop that weapon coming from the Soviet Union, then that will only encourage them to build a, you know, a different or a bigger or better weapon. But I much prefer a strong defense to an offense that can be taken out by any first world country. So for instance, like aircraft carriers, they are in some sense obsolete in a war with China or Russia at this point. Like they are sitting ducks or <laughs> with the technology they have. They, they let us project power right now into Iran, into Iraq and North Korea 
for a little bit longer. But for, you know, first world countries, it doesn't work. They're, they're going the way of castles, right? Like castles, by the way, our embassy in Iraq is like a castle. But castles became obsolete as soon as, uh, well, number one, it was rifling in a barrel that, that defeated castles. Like if you're just throwing stuff at a castle, the wall gets thicker when it hits. But if you've got rifling in your barrel, you can go through it. And then uh, castles absolutely became obsolete when people could get up in the air and drop crap on them, right? <laughs> so that's where aircraft carriers are going right now. Obsolescence. Well, well you, you, the other problem with with Empire <laughs> is that it's really expensive. And and I want to go back to Madison. He, he, he talked almost immediately about the debt and the taxes involved with, uh, he, he didn't use the word endless war until the end of that quote, but he's, <clears throat> he's talking about what happens when, when governments get into too many wars and they, they spend too much money. And, and I'm thinking a little bit about what, where are we at now? 22 oh, Matt, that's, trillion. That's, but that's so, that's such an antiquated notion because he couldn't control interest rates at the time. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 <laughs> and now we've evolved we can expand money and credit yeah, and, right. and just just pay it to ourselves. Could he foresee, have foreseen you know, a Federal Reserve that could actually set the interest rates for most of the world? Yeah, he, he, so. he's spinning in his grave right now. He is spinning in his grave because that's another kind of tax. So yeah. he's, still, he's still right. Yeah. By the way, I had the most surreal moment in one of these classified briefings, um, again, yesterday or day before, this stuff melts in your head. We had, we had the CIA director there. We had the Secretary of State. We had the Director of National Intelligence. We, I mean, we had the whole crew there. And, and these are mostly useless briefings. Uh, and they're pretty arrogant, by the way. It's, it's kind of perfunctory, right? But the surreal moment I had is when I watched a Democrat, you could go to the microphone and they would alternate between Republican and Democrat and members of Congress could ask direct questions to the panel. Democrat got up and started talking about how we've only got two active aircraft carriers in the Middle East and the law prescribes that we need to have three and uh, what what we're going to do about the readiness of our aircraft carriers and, you know, asking the, the general who was on the stage about you know, this crisis that we just don't have enough aircraft carriers. And I turned to my colleague to the right, Ben Klein, love this guy. He's from Virginia. And I said, is she from the district that makes aircraft carriers? <laughs> he was a Democrat. And he's nodded. He said, he said, yep. <laughs> so that tells you, like, when you get behind closed doors, uh, it, the, it really doesn't matter whether you've got an R or D on your lapel. If, you've, if, you've, if your district stands to benefit from the military-industrial complex, you see that as your mission is to keep it going. Yeah. And I always uh, oversimplified, described this this $22 trillion in debt. Um, There used to be this theoretical trade-off between guns and butter, and and Republicans were for fully funding the military, um, which is impossible because it's a a black hole. And, of course, the Democrats want to fully fund the social safety net, which is also impossible because it's a black hole. But there used to be some sort of squabble between the two, and they'd split the difference, and they'd— They'd try to sort of come up with something that that sort of reduced the deficit and came into balance. But the trade-off after 9-11 has been, I'll fund all of your military if you fund all of my social safety net stuff. And nobody seems to care anymore about spending. Um, but, the, but the aspect you bring up is, is, is also relevant, that it's, um, you know, bringing pork back to the district is not a partisan thing. It, it could be a Democrat, it could be a Republican, a Republican could replace a Democrat. And in a lot of ways, they just do the same thing because we need three aircraft carriers. It's the law. Right, yeah. <clears throat> I remember, uh, ironically, it was, it was uh, Trump's 
now acting chief of staff, who was his acting OMB director, who is his acting CFPP director. <laughs> He's doing all that stuff. Yeah. Mick Mulvaney, he, every year he would offer an amendment. Uh, I think it's, it's either 12 or 11. Congress sets by law the number of aircraft carriers the military, the Navy has to have. In spite of what the admirals want, Congress says, damn it, you're going to have, and I, and I forget if it's 12 or 11 or 10, you're going to have this many aircraft carriers. And Mick Mulvaney would always offer an amendment, and I, was, I would always vote for it, uh, that said, you know what, we're going to reduce the, we're not going to reduce the amount of money the Navy gets. We're just going to reduce this requirement by one. That, so instead of having to have like 11 aircraft carriers, they can just have 10. And uh, do you know which organization scored against that and came? You probably do. <clears throat> In their annual scorecard, they would say you were not a conservative if you voted for Mick Mulvaney's amendment. Literally, out of the 10 most important votes that year, they would pick Mick Mulvaney's uh, amendment as a threat to, con to conservatives. Is this heritage? It was heritage. Yeah. <laughs> I see. I, I, I vaguely Which, remember that, but it, it was a. It, by the way, yeah. I don't want to pick on heritage. They do a lot of good stuff. The, I, I usually have like an 85% score with heritage and a 95% score with Freedom Works and, you know, whatever. Uh, but I say, you know, heritage is wrong 15% of the time and Freedom Works is wrong 5% of the time if I've got 95%. Blah, blah, well, because blah. you're the gold standard. That's right. Yeah. Like, so anyway, the Massey standard. That's one. Honestly, that's one they need called out on. Yeah, and uh, and that's that's Trump's now chief of staff who offered that amendment every year. But that's that's the Achilles heel, and I I remember it never passed. By have, the way, having all of these these budget fights and and the Achilles heel for fiscally conservative Republicans was the need to fully fund the military. And I still don't know what that means, but they, they always took a dive because they, 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 they needed to do that. It was a religion. So uh, in these uh, annual omnibus events, they would bring us down into the basement there, the Capitol at HC5, where you have your conference meeting. And they would give us talking points to go back to the district and explain our votes. And they were asking conservatives to walk the plank and vote for the omnibus. And every talking point they gave had to do with increased military spending. And I joked that they were giving us all a banjo with one string on it and no frets. Yeah. And said, go play this one string banjo with no frets to your constituents. Yeah, go sing a song, One Note Johnny. It was the military string. There was yeah. none of the other strings on the banjo and no opportunity to make a chord or anything. It's, uh, it was crazy, but that's, I mean, what, what is a one string banjo with no strings and frets? It's a drum. They would they would basically say go beat this drum right yeah yeah well so we're so we're picking on conservatives and Republicans and and you said something earlier that I think is is worth revisiting because I, I don't think this is about Donald Trump and I I have to 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 give a shout out for um, his restraint and he you know the downside is he's he's surrounded himself with guys like Pompeo and and I feel like the ghost of of the guy with the mustache is still there. I've forgotten his name, John Bolton. <laughs> um, he's 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 lurking somewhere in the background. His mustache is still there. Um, but I I still think that that Trump's instinct is restraint, and and I also think that that we haven't spent much time here, sort of calling out Barack Obama's hypocrisy and his expansion of of executive war powers. Um, he he pretty much created. A scenario, um, particularly with Libya, but 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 the the drone strikes, uh, four hundred and fifty or something like that. Um, he's, On individual people that were targeted, yeah. right? These these were people with names. These weren't like military enclaves or militias. It was like we're taking out this dude, and we got a drone with a missile with that dude's name on it. And Obama delivered those 500, you know, drone strikes. By the way, 
Um, I, I try to be an honorable person and I, I would never disclose in a private conversation what somebody said to me, but I feel at liberty to say what I've said to other people. The president called me today on this vote and made actually a pretty good case for why it wouldn't be a good vote. That He made the case that he would, could do a better job of preventing war without having his hands tied. And, and it was a pretty compelling case. Didn't compel me all the way. Uh, and I, again, I'm just saying all that vaguely. I'm not giving you specific things. But the, the thing that I, I told him is I thanked him. And, 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 and I told him, I said, you know what? You're the first president so far in my lifetime that hasn't started a war. Like, and it's true. Fingers, right? fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. You know, and uh, he said, you're right. You know, he, is, he, he does not want another war. I believe that based on personal conversations with him. Again, I'm not going to tell you what specifically he said to me about that. <clears throat> but uh, I believe he doesn't want a war with Iran. Uh, I believe he's using the Ronald Reagan strategy of peace through superior firepower. And and so uh, I thanked him for not starting another war. It's un, it's almost unheard of in the presidents in, in modern history. Yeah. And and Barack Obama uh, for all of his oh yeah let's talk about Obama yeah, yeah. for all of his he, anti-war rhetoric yeah because he wanted to go to war in 2013 against Syria and uh, I I remember this very distinctly and and well, John Kerry had said they'd cross the red line blah, blah blah Obama said well I'll go to Congress and Pelosi said we're yes we'll pass your war and Boehner. Yes, we'll pass your war. But it took like about a week to get the resolution drafted. And in that period of time, I received a a hundred phone calls a day against the war. Now, I usually receive about five phone calls a day. Like if you went back over the last seven years I've been in Congress, the average would be four, three, four to uh, 20 phone calls would be a lot of phone calls in a day. So to get 100 phone calls a day, six days in a row, was a big deal, and I knew all my colleagues were getting it. Um, Americans in 2013 did not want to go to war. Uh, in, in Syria. About, in Syria. By the way, I also introduced the War Powers Protection Act, right? It's virtually, it's very similar to what the Democrats did today. So when people say, oh, well, you were all, you know, you never criticized Obama. You, were, you only decided to be against war when Trump became president. Like, I just post, I mean, it's on congress.gov. I introduced these bills, right? I got the YouTubes. Go watch them. I opposed it. My constituents opposed it. So what actually happened is uh, that was like August, September. There was a government shutdown. And people forgot, thank goodness for Obama and the Democrats, because there was no support for it. We never passed an authorization. And then what Congress did is they secretly... Uh, funded, and I'm not. I'm pretty sure most of my colleagues didn't even know they were voting for omnibuses and CRs that secretly funded a war in Syria. Because I, Justin Amash and I, like other than the two of us, I, I never saw more than five other people go to the skiff and read the classified section of the budget. And so, anyways, there there was you know funding and i, I can tell you this cuz it was in the new york times not because i was in the skiff looking at it so so it must be true <laughs> it must be true i think even the uh, mike pompeo has talked about this he's the secretary of state now it must be true um, and then and then that little secret war which by the way isis quickly evolved <laughs> isis wasn't a thing it was there was money going in to fund, as John McCain called them, moderate rebels, and and weapons. And you know, like I've asked in a hearing, I asked somebody, can you tell me 
did we fund ISIS? You know, they wouldn't answer. Like, it's classified, blah, blah. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, we, we sort of like fomented what became ISIS in 2013. O- Obama wanted his fingers in all that stuff. I mean, and they were funneling through S- Libya. I mean, R- Rand was great at, at pointing this out. Arms into Syria. And, uh, you know, he did the war in Libya. That was before I got there. I can't speak to that. But I know in 2013 exactly how things transpired. And then eventually they put boots on the ground. And he and it just they and the eight, by the way, this and the Democrats not I'm not going to say all of the Democrats, but a lot of the Democrats look the other way. Sure. There are some there are some I want to I give a shout out to the Democrats who I know have true convictions and have always been against even Obama's wars, like Barbara Lee. Yeah. Okay. I know she's got true convictions. And, Ro- and she's your your co-sponsor on repeal of the, the 2002 yeah. AUMF. Right, the one in the Iraq. Yeah. She's She's been a consistent voice. Like, these are the rare examples I'm giving you, right? Rokana, who's recently come to Congress, like I, he wasn't here for Syria. He's he's been a fairly consistent voice. voice. Tulsi Gabbard yep. has been a consistent voice against war. Um, but the sad thing is, like I'm not naming them all, but if you if I had time and could look stuff up, I could name them all, and they probably fit on both hands. You like wouldn't the, run out of fingers. I wouldn't run out of fingers. Yeah, um, and I don't have extra fingers. I've got ten, like everybody else. Of the, of the number of Democrats who were willing to criticize Obama in the way that they're willing to criticize Trump now. Yeah. And, and that, that to me is, is depressing. But that, that story, and, and let's wrap up with this because, because I think it's important to understand what Madison and Hamilton had in mind. When Barack Obama went to Congress and, and wanted authorization to go into Syria, um, you talked to your constituents and they said no, and you said no, and that should have been the end of the story. Right, right. But, but then they did an end run around right. it and funded it secretly. Right. Um, but, but it is a success story in, in some regard. Like, I think it would be a full-blown war in Syria. Like, yeah. let's, say, let's say Obama could have gone to war in Syria, full-on war, put boots on the ground in 2013. We would be having the sort of proxy war with Iran and Russia that we're having in Iraq today. But I think it would have been much hotter because you would still have a leader who's not deposed yet. You would still have Assad. And it, it could have been much worse. There could have been, like you know, with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, where we've lost together in both of those conflicts at least a fa- uh, 5,000 soldiers, there could have been thousands of men and women who died in Syria if, if Obama had got his, gotten his way and done a full-on hot war, boots-on-the-ground war in Syria. And it didn't happen because Congress pushed back. Now, there was the little end run where you did the, the our proxy war, right, with secret money, okay? Yeah. But this is the wisdom. Like when people say, no, 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 Congress never makes up their mind. They would, they, it would take them months, maybe years to decide to go to war. Well, that's what happened in Syria, and that's why thousands of lives, American lives, weren't lost in Syria. And so this is, that's an example of the wisdom of Madison. Now you could say, you could also try to give credit to Obama, but (laughs) to take that away, he was doing as much end run as he could and eventually put boots on the ground. And he, and he did as much as he could get away with. Yeah. And, and by the way, the, the, the wisdom of the American people, which supposedly is the American system. We, we believe in the wisdom of, of the American people. And, uh, well, let's, let's wrap up because, because we could go on all night about, about the good, the bad, and the ugly of foreign policy. But I, 
but I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and I appreciate you sticking your neck out when it's not comfortable. But my prediction is you're going to go back to your district and find people that appreciate what you've done. So come back and tell us how that goes. All right. I'll let you know how that goes. I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I want to finish with a tribute to my friend Walter Jones, who passed away last year. It's, you know, I'm going to be judged twice on the on my activities in Congress, once in my next election and once when I draw my last breath of air. And it's the second one that guides me more so than the first one. Words to live by. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.